edition of the Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. Before we get started with this week's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners, and if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got Will Boyd. Will is a orthopedic manual therapy, or in orthopedic manual therapy and is the co-host of know your body so welcome to the show will hey thanks for having me on james i really appreciate it uh before we delve into today's topic will can you talk to us about how you got into orthopedic uh therapy in the first place sure so i i uh i'm a physiotherapist by trade i uh went to school here in the u.s for uh here it's a doctor of physical therapy program. I was able to uh, complete that and had a, an interest in outpatient ortho, orthopedics, which uh, includes things like manual therapy. Uh, I think oftentimes that can be confusing. It just means we do we do things with our hands and we help treat people with our hands. Um, and so that's what uh, that's what I got into. I, I was going to go to law school. Decided. Uh, I pictured myself sitting for way too long and decided I need to figure a different career path. And so uh, I started Googling, what should I do with my life? What should I do with my career? You know, the typical way anyone figures out what they should be in life by Googling and asking Google what they should do. And uh, Google wasn't wrong. It, it, it led me down the medical world and, and uh, recommended physiotherapy. And since then, I've been practicing here in the U.S. for uh, the past six months, and it's been a blast. I'm a recent graduate, and it's uh, it's exciting. It's a great field to be a part of. And you're talking about you you re- researched on Google. Could you probably associate that now in the modern era as somebody speaking to probably the likes of Siri? Um, I can't think of what the Amazon one's called. Alexa, or something like, and doing something like that as opposed to actually typing it in on the computer now. Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about that, but that's that's probably true. And it's that's I could just picture Alexa or Siri right now saying, "Will, you should be a physiotherapist." And how easy would that have been? I wouldn't even have had to have read anything. I just could have had someone tell me what to do. Well, it's it's probably coming. It comes down to that that convenience now that people want to do the least amount possible. Uh, as a, as a physiotherapist, I, I hate to say that I can uh, completely uh, understand if that's the reality because uh, it's it's hard work. Things are are it's hard to to express to people that the um, you know true change comes from really hard work, as you know so well um, with the fit amputee community that uh, that change really takes determination and hard work, and unfortunately, there's no one quick fix or one simple solution always. I'm sure you probably see it from your work base. Uh, Obviously when we, when I talk about, we want that shortcut, but because people are coming more sedentary and doing things like that, uh, not moving about, you probably seen probably a sharp increase of more patients because they're not as limber as well. The population once was, Absolutely. No, you know, you hit the nail on the head, James, and it's, uh, you're absolutely right. It's a, we live in a culture that's become very, very uh, essentially what we, we often refer to as the pill society and that there's got to be a pill or a something I can just take that will fix the problem for me. 
rather than I am the source of the potential solution. So a lot of times what we struggle with is, uh, uh, you know, really we get to the heart of behavior change. You know, how do you help someone come to a decision to change their behavior when you're faced with an opportunity to, let's say if you have pain, for example, you have the choice of taking a, uh, you know, a, a opioid or a pain limiting pill or hey, it's going to take eight to 10 weeks, but I can probably help you get this pain to subside through just general movement and exercise and allowing me to get my hands on you a little bit, doing some deep tissue massage stuff, helping move your joints a little bit. Um, you know, which would you rather do? And one is obviously safer, the one that doesn't involve pharmaceuticals. But, you know, sadly, given the choice, I think a lot of people would still choose, I'll just take the pill. That sounds a lot easier and I don't have to do as much work. And, uh, and that's no indictment on people. That's how we are as a society. And so we have to, you know, that's in our profession in particular, that's what we're facing is how do we really help people understand that they can be the source of controlling their own pain and you don't have to look to just the pill to, uh, to lower your pain or reduce your symptoms. It's an interesting time. We definitely have a lot of seeing a lot of patients who have what we call self-induced diseases, something like type 2 diabetes, uh, obesity, uh, even sometimes like congestive heart failure just due to uh, poor sedentary uh, lifestyle. Uh, and so that's, that's what we're up against. And, and definitely we're seeing more and more people who uh, are just wanting that quick solution. And uh, that's, that's the challenge that we face is how do we help people understand it's going to take hard work. And, and sometimes I'm sure you know all too well with people who want to change their fitness and their health. It's a lot of psychology beyond just physiology and programming. But doesn't it come back to this, this kind of underlying issue, Will, that people obviously, like you were saying, want to take the easy route and have a pill, but is, does it come back to that notion of what of obviously they're going to go to the doctor to get prescriptions for whatever ailment that they have. Does it come back to that element of, or if the, the doctor says I need to take this, I got to trust what they're saying. Yeah, we have a huge role to play as, as healthcare professionals, medical professionals. Um, absolutely. We, I think we oftentimes can forget about our authority uh, just based on our education that, People seem, you know, people look at us, uh, and and I'm not a, a medical doctor, so, uh, but especially a medical doctor, you know, when you see a medical doctor and they tell you information, you you take that seriously because you just assume that they know, you know, the more than anyone else on that topic because that's their their authority. It's it's sort of the same way if if I went to you know James, if I were to come to you and say, hey, I'm, I'm I can't get my fitness under control. And you told me, well, it's due to X, Y, and Z or X, Y, and Z. I'd say, yeah, okay. I believe you. You know, that's, you're the one who does this all the time. You're the one who, who is putting people through the motions. So I, I would believe it. I do think that we often forget that we, our words and our language are very important and that we have a responsibility to really help someone truly understand what's going on with their body. Uh, not just, you need to do X, Y, and Z, but you need to, uh, you know, and even those words like that, you need to, we need to be talking. I personally believe we need to be talking in a way that's, you know, here are options that you can choose and put the power onto the patient or to the 
client, right? It's your choice. This isn't me dictating what you have to do, but rather saying, here are the options. I will, you know, inform you in a way that one or two of these are better options, but it's ultimately your choice and you have to be the root of change. And kind of to kind of go on from that point, have you seen by how the way you speak uh, influences your, your client base? If you said you must do this as opposed to giving them the tools and the choice to pick what route they go down, what are the kind of success rates between the two? Yeah, it's, it's a great, great question. And I 100% absolutely, our language matters and our words matter. Um, I think anything, if you, if you have any interest in, in language and the power of language, just study marketing for a little bit or advertising, right? It's, it's essentially the science of how to use words and images to convince you to take an action. And that's what we do uh, in any of our fields, just through the language that we use. So for me, it's, it's important that we uh, use language like, you know, here, here's what seems to be going on to me. And, and I never try to come at someone with, I know exactly what's going on with you because we can never understand what's going on. A human being is so dynamic, so complex, and there's so many layers to a person that as soon as you start to assume, I believe, as soon as you start to assume that you know what is going wrong with a, or going awry with a patient or a client, immediately you're trying to take power, right? I know the solution. I know the answer. I'm the one who can help you. And I hate to say it, but I think it's a little bit of an ego trip on our part to say, we know exactly what, you know, I'm the one with the solution, you know, look to me, even though we don't mean that. And that's not our intention using language like that, that here's what's even the phrase, here's what's going on. Here's, here's what, here's what I think is the problem. Instead of using language, uh, you know, like, I just want to, I want to tell you what I've been seeing, Mrs. Jones, you know, where it looks like X, Y, and Z, you know, seems to be happening. Although you know, we can't be a hundred percent sure. And we really want to help you um, come to a decision about what you want to do. And here's some things that we do know can help, you know, generally moving, getting up and just moving more is one of the best things someone can do for low back pain. You know, is that something that you think you would like to do more? Would you like to get up and move more? And so instead of saying you need to get up and move more and asking the question, is that something you would like to do, right? Instead of me giving the power or taking the power and saying you have to ask and asking, would, is that something you would like to? We're shifting power, right? Now the power is on them. You get to choose, right? It's your choice. You're the decision maker. And, and I tend to find, and I think uh, science would, and I think there, you would find through researching studies that people respond much more to choice and more positively to having control and power than being dictated what to do. I, I often think of a little kid when you tell a little kid, <laughs> or let's just say even, even some adults, you know, Hey, you can't do this. What's the first thing they do? The opposite. They do that. <laughs> but when you say, Hey, you can do this, this, or this, let me just give you some information about this, this, and this. And obviously you, you phrase it in a way that two of those aren't really good options. And one is, and you let them come to a decision, all of a sudden you feel so much more empowered to know that, Hey, I'm the one who came to that decision. No one told me what I had to do. So uh, I, I mean, I'd be super curious from your side of things, working with clients, what, what you see in terms of language. Cause I think for me, it's, it's absolutely critical that we, we use language as a, as a key component of how we help people. I think from my side of things, 
I've been very much, I think in, in the earlier part of my career, I've been, like you said, you must do this. I think it works if we analyze it a little bit, maybe 50% of your, your population that you're working with will respond to that. The other half will be like you, you, you've mentioned, they'll do the opposite or, or not put that into action at all. And you're kind of feeling like you're banging your head against a brick wall. Whereas with shifting my business onto the internet and, and speaking to people and probably engaging a little bit more like, like we're doing today, be it Skype, FaceTime, Zoom, and you getting to know the person, you can kind of see where their tendencies are, um, kind of look where they'll answer certain questions and, and and kind of get a feel as well. I can I can maybe speak to you this way, uh, or I have to speak to you like like we were saying, and give you choices, and you can then implement it. And I think I've I've had ch- changed clients behaviors that they probably thought oh james you you got to teach me x y and z to to get to my goal and as we've progressed on it's kind of shifted across and gone to the other one they'll speak to me and say oh, i've got still have this goal in mind but they'll they'll give their red flags as to why something's not going right so it's okay i've not had to tell you anything you've told me this is this is this is what's not going right at this particular moment. Okay, this I can just say, well, you, you found the root cause. It doesn't really matter what the end goal is if we don't solve those two, which are a massive one, which was uh, consistency. And I can't remember what the other one is off the top of my head. Obviously, a big one, consistency. It doesn't matter what you do uh, or whatever goal it is. If you're not consistent with something, that's that's going to be the problem but you've you've brought it up to me i've not had to uh say well this is the problem off the off the bat you you've you've identified with it you so obviously you're gonna that's the your call to action as to well i need to put that back in check to progress on and he messaged me last week everything's going well again so it's so it kind of put it puts the ball in the client's core as to They've got what, or you give them the knowledge to be able to implement things, and be it if they at a different stage and then go into that, they can kind of identify kind of when it's not all all rose, but then it's not going to be perfect all the time anyway. So it's kind of teaching people you can have a bad day and don't dwell on the fact that it's it's you've you've gone out and enjoyed yourself it's like it's it could be one meal it i'd probably stretch to probably say probably don't probably go more than a day and as long as you go that as long as it doesn't escalate to a week and beyond you'll be fine it's i think it's that comes back to that societal thing of demonizing obviously unhealthy food is bad and good food as good well you put it into context and I brought it up I think a number of times recently on the podcast of it doesn't matter in the context of the thing, be it good or bad, you eat too much of one thing. It doesn't really matter. It's still food at the end of the day. If you're consuming more than you're expending, it doesn't matter if it's, um, what would be uh, lean cuts of meat. We'll say, 
or as opposed to chocolate. If you're going to exhume exorbitant amounts, you're going to put weight on. So I think from the fitness, uh, the fitness industry side of things and say the dieting companies, they probably manipulate the wording as, so like you say, from a marketing point, this is going to help you lose weight. You must cut this out. But you need to uh, look probably on reflection as to uh, what is this doing for, to my body by taking a food group out or um, demonize. It's kind of, it kind of twists the psyche to a certain extent from my perspective that you're saying you can't have this food. This food is bad for you. Obviously, like you were saying, your analogy with the child or an adult, you tell them to do something. Obviously, they're going to do the opposite. Or if you're demonizing uh, such a thing, well, they're going to feel bad on themselves if they do, what would I say, crack under pressure and have something. They're going to feel probably 10 times worse as opposed to if you say, uh, you probably teach their behavior as to any food on, on, the, on the table that you want to have or you enjoy, you can still have. Just have it in smaller amounts or have it as a treat or something like that. Whereas I'm not demonizing it, so you're not going to feel bad when you do have it, if you get what I mean. No, yeah, that makes, it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's neat to hear it from your side of, of things, especially uh, I think it's fascinating to hear since you've transitioned to being more online where um, I think it's fascinating. I think because, you know, oftentimes we rely on this kind of face-to-face, you know, being in person with someone, helping them change and to see this new platform of being online and, and really what you have is your language, right? You can, you have your eyes, you can see through, through video, but for the most part, it's, it's how you talk to that person. I imagine. I think it comes back to that personal connection that be, I don't think it really matters to some extent that it be face to face um, or on the, on video, because you still like that interaction face to face. Obviously from, if we put it in your field of the, you couldn't, you can't do that because you, your job is very hand, hands-on. I think, I don't know, I think from a, probably maybe a technical standpoint, it's probably more difficult with it being online because you can't obviously change, say, postural things because you can't, you're not generally in the room with them. So you've got to, um, at some extent, be it, I think maybe if they're a more advanced individual, uh, they probably can identify with oh I'm not I'm not this this movement is not quite right or uh, probably a good one for people to look at and probably uh, a tip here is obviously if you're not feeling confident with your posture or with a new exercise probably to look and use a mirror as a guide as that's probably the greatest tool you're probably gonna to have to kind of see how your body is operating and if I say or if we use the squat, for example, you need to be in this X, Y, Z position. Um, it's not the end of the world if you've got a different um, biological pattern that you follow. Obviously, everybody's um, posture, not posture, um, physical attributes are different, so they're going to get into a different position. I might say you need to be in this position, but it doesn't always, that won't always be, that's probably like textbook. You, way of looking at things you need to be in this these 
um, positions on on each stage of the exercise. But it's one I brought up with Garbine is looking at the per- you need to look at how your pattern of movement works and go from there, and then look to make those uh, small incremental changes as opposed to saying, "Well, this is what it says in a book." I've got to be to the. I've got to follow it less as a law, whereas that doesn't always work. You could have longer legs, um, longer torso. It would be another one, and you're not going to get in the same position as with with me. You've got I've got long le- long levers and small torso. I'm going to be in a different position. So it's probably looking at those. Uh, obviously, I brought up the tip of the mirror. The other one will probably be video in it, and you can kind of get that. Uh, and I'll analytical view of yourself uh it's probably a good one for people that don't like cr- um positive criticism that, oh, you're not doing this correctly uh joe whereas if you video it yourself you can't argue against it that's what it said that's what it's showing that's what you're doing yeah i, I think it's i think that's fascinating you're i think you're right i mean i think uh we're, we're actually finding more and more too in our field in physiotherapy trying to shift more to an online platform in a lot of places because I, I think that essentially what you're doing and, and through um, strength and conditioning principles, aerobic capacity principles, I still think are the best therapeutic interventions that, and when I say that, I mean, that's how we describe our, our treatments or how we would help a patient is described through, for example, an intervention, but it essentially means how we would help someone, what we would offer them. And I still think that, you know, therapeutic exercise in the sense of, of strength and conditioning principles and cardiovascular endurance aerobic conditioning principles are the staple of helping someone become the best functioning person out there. And, and I'm a huge believer that it doesn't matter your age. You are an athlete. As long as you're, you are having to maneuver in this environment called earth, you are an athlete and you have to move in your environment. You have to get around. Um, that could be you know, even if, even if that means that you're, you're 95 and you're, you're bed bound, you still have to find ways to move and interact with the world. And so you are, in my mind, that's the definition of, of an athlete. Now, don't get me wrong. There are performance athletes that are, uh, you know, do some incredible feats, but, uh, I would argue that watching, for example, my 95 year old patient who just had a stroke stand up with a little bit of help is, I mean, that's an athletic movement that takes a ton of power, a ton of strength. Um, I, I think that where, where you're going and moving on to that, essentially what I was going to say with that is that those principles can be transferred to an online platform, like what you've got going on, um, with fit MPT and so in your, and your training principles. So I think, uh, or your training program, I think, I think we're in a world where we can use this technology to really help spread the message that, you know, we have to get people moving. We have to move more. We have to, we have to get out of this position of, of hunched over on a computer seven to eight, 10 hours a day. Um, I'm a big believer that the biggest way out of, out of this uh, sort of cultural shift that we've made over the past 50, 60 years of becoming more sedentary. Like we, we, we have to just reverse it. We have to move. We have to get up and move. Well, probably a good analogy for that one, Will, is, is probably treating the body as a well-oiled machine. Absolutely. And, and I think a lot of people, you know, what's tough, James, is I think a lot of people, uh, for example, that I meet 
don't view themselves as having a well-oiled machine. They, they view themselves as having a uh, more of a tin man type of body and that they're, they're, the oils kind of run dry and, and it, and some strict, uh, you know, very straightforward. If anyone's had arthritis or had, uh, you know, cartilage wear down, they, you know, often people think I feel stiff and I feel, uh, like I just don't have the juice anymore that I used to. And, uh, we know that sometimes that can be true. So you have this, what's called synovial fluid between your joints and uh, what's interesting is that people who have arthritis tend to think that not moving is the best thing. But actually, the only way that we produce more of the synovial fluid is through movement. The body responds to the stress of movement, and it's forced to need to produce more. So by be- becoming sedentary, you actually make the issue worse. And so that's what we're finding, that, it's, that it's, the body is meant to be a well-oiled machine, even though some people might not feel that way. We do know that some of the best treatments for low back pain, depending on, um, obviously depending on someone's specific condition, but for the majority of chronic low back pain, movement is one of the best treatments out there. Walking more, moving more, moving side to side, just getting your body out of one position is one of the best things we can do. And so I think you, you hit the nail on the head. The body is meant to be a well-oiled machine. And it always can be, but it takes sort of this, uh, it takes a mental shift to kind of get back to that. And we start viewing people as athletes again, doesn't matter what age, uh, what your, you know, let's say your health status is, you have to be able to move. And that's just a a huge component of life. And so, uh, that's, that's what we're hoping to be able to do, I think, with both of our, our fields, both of our professions, is get people able to become better athletes just to maneuver in this world, in our environment. It's, it's not always about, can I run the fastest? Can I jump the highest? But can I do the things that matter? You know, like when I'm, if I've got to go up that big curb to get to the grocery store, can I do that? And we often think we take it for granted, but that's an athletic movement. You've got to be able to get your foot up, your leg up. You've got to be able to, or to however you're going to do it. If you've got to, you know, if, if you've got to get your, maybe you have to crawl up. You know, I have a lot of patients who crawl up the stairs at night and that's how they get upstairs just because they, they feel too weak to go with their legs. And so, um, yeah, I, I kind of, I kind of went away from the original question there, James. I, I just got me thinking about how we, we, I just wish we would view people more as athletes at even regardless of what age they're at. Well, uh, the kind of point you ended with there with people clawing up the stairs. Well, oh, I'll, I'll use myself as the example. Uh, you couldn't just define that as an able-bodied person. If I don't have my prosthetic leg on, I will, well, I won't, I won't term it crawling, but it's a form of, uh, we could say, I'm an animalistic type of walking to go up the stairs. So it's, it's, it, I probably do it because it's quicker. I'm using our free limbs as opposed to to hop in up with one and I'm not going to make as much noise going upstairs. So I won't wake up at the, the household. So it's, I wouldn't define it just to the able-bodied population. And right. obviously that like you were saying, if that's the way, the only way you can get up the stairs, be it, um, we'll, we'll say it, term it safely. And there's nothing wrong with doing it that way. It's, it's probably the more, more efficient way of, of getting around 
but to come back to the point that you raised about that Tin Man approach, uh, or the Tin Man way people feel, would it not come down to teaching them to uh, know their bodies and be able to, as yourself and I know within the the, fitness, the health industry, tr- like you know, trigger points, would it be good for them to know if they are slightly tight, if they, they can kind of pinpoint, well, this is where, this is where it's the kind of problem is arising. Yeah, no. Um, I think that we, uh, the more we go, I'm a big believer that the more we go looking for finding quote unquote problems or deficiencies or, you know, limiting factors like tightness, um, the more we sort of give someone a, a reason to think that's the issue, um, which, which is sometimes that is the case. I think a lot of times people will tend to, to feel better just moving more. I mean, really, I think increasing their activity level, so increasing the intensity. Um, so we think about something like tightness, right? Tightness is a sensation. It's actually just a, a perceived sensation of how far a muscle spindle can go. And so a muscle spindle just means that You have a sensor within every muscle fiber that tells your, sends a signal to your brain, have I gone too far? Have I stretched too far? Have I pulled too far? Um, So you're actually, the sense of tightness isn't always a sense that someone is tight. It's actually that they perceive to only have a certain limitation when they're stretching or when they're moving. And so telling someone that they're tight, I think, can lead someone to focus on something like that. And I know that's one specific example, but... We often help, I think when we say things like that, we can lead someone to believe, oh, well, if I just am not tight in my hip, I'll be back to where I was 20 years ago. And that might not be the case, right? So we have to talk about, um, you know, it could be a limiting factor. You know, let's say someone has a, a tight calf, right? I think we've all probably experienced tight calves at some point in our life or a, uh, you know, a tight, tight low back. Your back seizes up or tenses up. And, uh, and we have to help someone say, Hey, you're not tight because your muscles are in this fixed tightened position, right? It's just, that's what they've gotten used to. And now they detect that's your, your normal position. That's your normal length. We need to reteach the body. What is its normal length? What can it get to? What can it do? So I think something like trigger points are great. And they can definitely help. Uh, I think that, uh, unfortunately, we, I think as, as patients, uh, being a patient myself, having had, you know, some uh, ankle sprains and things like that in the past and then gone to see a physical therapist before, um, you know, we want to think that's the answer. But yeah, just do that one thing and, and, and I'll be back and be good instead of, right, it's this process of growth and, and regrowing and re-educating that takes weeks. We know that, for example, you, you can't even strengthen a muscle in terms of changing size of muscle until at least six to eight weeks. Uh, up until that point, it's just neurological changes. So it's just your, your brain being able to tell that muscle to activate quicker. So it takes time. It takes uh, a process. And so, uh, yeah, I think something like trigger point can be great, especially someone who, who feels tight. Uh, however, I, 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 I always am nervous to say that like that's the answer or the solution to someone uh, feeling the way they want to feel because ultimately it's a small change. If you go back to living 
the life that you've been living before and going back to the same habits, sitting in the same posture eight to 10 hours a day, me doing 20 to 30 minutes of trigger point massage will help you probably for the next two, three hours. After that, if you go back to the way you're living, I would feel pretty confident betting that within the next day or two, it's going to go back to how it was. I think that's, that's probably a good explanation as to why that it probably will work for some people. I think probably more the advanced population, maybe work a little bit better. Obviously I've kind of worked alongside the physiotherapist type work, be it from the athlete perspective, I've kind of learned to know my body from mm. the sports side of things. And then when, when now I've retired from that, I still kind of know how my body works. So I can kind of, uh, I will be very much with my physiotherapist say, well, I'll be very much more specific because I know the the lingo as I, I won't be, I won't generalize and say people say, Oh, I've got back pain. I can, I can kind of say, well, I think it's this muscle, this muscle and kind of, say it's the myofascial chain of events that's actually causing it. And it, I think maybe from somebody within your field, it maybe helps a little bit more because I'm being a bit more uh, subjective and I think I'm going into a little bit more depth. I to think, well, I think it's a problem in this and it kind of maybe gives you a bit more um, to go with in terms of how you go about treating more. Whereas if I said... I think it's hurting here, here, here. It's not very um, specific and it could be, you could, well, not also you'd be way off, but you're might be spending more time as well. This isn't, this isn't actually tight. As you said, it's, it's, it's quite normal, but the natural problem is somewhere else where, and you could, I won't say wasting time, but you're not getting to the root cause off the bat, but then that's quite difficult. Like you were saying early on, it, it's quite a difficult one to find out what's the actual root cause of uh, tightness. Yeah, no, I, you, you make a great point, James. And, and, and honestly, uh, uh, I think it again goes back to, to recognizing that we're dealing with a human being and that even if I were to find specific measurements, let's say, or, um, you know, we did uh, data on whether your right arm or your left arm could push harder. Ultimately, to me, that doesn't mean anything if we can't have you actually get back to doing what you want to do. Numbers are great. I, I think they're vital and we, we need to keep tracking them. But ultimately, if, you, if I can get your right arm as strong as your left arm and you still can't reach over your head to get that cup of coffee, what good has it done me that I've made your right arm stronger? when you can't complete the task that you want to complete. But we do know that what is really, really important is that whatever the patient or client expects will help them get better often is what will get the patient better. And this is why I'm a huge believer in that uh, health and wellness is very much a psychology world as it is physiology in the sense that, for example, if you go see a physiotherapist. So here in the States, and, and I don't know for sure in England, but here in, in the UK, but here in the States, uh, phys physiotherapists in most States can do what we call manipulation or essentially cracking your back or however you want to, to call that. So we do, we do what a, we are capable of doing what a chiropractor does. Um, 
And if you go in and you think that that's what's going to help your back pain, we've found through studies that if I say, no, you don't need that, and I do four other things that I think are best for you, you're more likely going to say that you still don't feel good than if I did the one thing that you think that is going to help you, you will feel better. Like we've done studies and it shows. So your beliefs are absolutely critical to your own health and understanding your body. So if you feel like, hey, I just need, I need that trigger point massage in my, my back or my neck, right? And there's this muscle right here. I need that trigger point. And if I tell you, James, no, you don't. And I don't, if I don't take that into consideration, odds are you're not going to feel that much better. Maybe but we know that there's a much better chance that you will report feeling better if we provide you what you expect will help you feel better. On to kind of put this in context for the listeners, uh, Will and I were discussing this also probably a couple of days ago on Facebook about the, the, the psychosomatic element of uh, physiotherapy and kind of what the question I asked you over Facebook was, is what was your take on... Uh, cupping and gua sha and obviously you were saying like like you just said it's it's very much if you believe it's going to work it probably we will yeah and so we we have uh the evidence still isn't super strong in terms of research on cupping um i don't know about the research um but we do know that there there's been heavily researched your beliefs and, and expectations essentially the patient or client expectations so if you expect something is going to help you get better just playing into that helps and so a lot of what manual therapy is and I'm by no means an expert and it's not something I've studied uh you know beyond my coursework I haven't been you know writing research myself on it or doing studying it uh, as a researcher but we we do know that a lot of manual therapy in the sense that when i get my hands on you the power of touch very much has physiological uh changes in that you know it can increase blood flow with massage it can reduce uh, uh sort of that sensory uh, tension, right? Sensation tension that we talk about where if you've ever met someone really tense and you just touch them, they can jump quickly and it just jumps the, the nervous system, right? The sympathetic nervous system, which is our flight flight system, like get out of there, um, fight or flight system, get out. And we can help detrain that and just calm someone's system down through our hands, which is a very powerful tool. Ultimately, like if James, for example, if you've got a shoulder issue, and I get my hands on you, more than likely me just using my hands is not going to help your shoulder. But when we use it as a tool to build trust with the patient, to help lower your nervous system, to help calm you down, it's very, very powerful. And so something like cupping, something like washa can be very powerful in the way of just reducing uh, sort of your, your nervous system and then also feeding into your expectation, right? If I were to say, you know, I play better, I, I only play my best when I play rugby, when I drink a Gatorade before the game, right? Like, I don't think there's any evidence that's going to say you need to drink a Gatorade before your game to play your best, right? In fact, there's probably some argument like you shouldn't have that much sugar in you right before you play a game. But if you believe it, you will probably play better if you have that Gatorade because it's in your, your mental psyche. It's in your expectation. And so things like cupping 
even though we don't have the best evidence, uh, it, it's, it's a useful tool. And I always ex- express that to people that it's just a tool. It's a, it's a part of a bigger process, right? If you, for example, James, if you didn't, if you decided the next 10 years, you weren't going to move more than two minutes a day at all. And I said, Hey, we're going to do cupping James. You're not going to, you're not going to, I'm not going to restore your ability to move better, right? You still have to put in the hard work. You still have to be able to move. You have to be able to do the exercise. You have to be able to, to, to use your body for what it was meant for. And that's movement. Like the, it was designed. It's the coolest, coolest machine that's ever been invented or created or however you, whatever you believe that to move It has one goal and that's to move. Um, and to protect this thing called our brain that helps us think sometimes too much, but to help us think. Um, and so, uh, expectations are huge. What you expect will help you. We have to take into account. So something like cupping, something like gua sha, I would never tell a patient or client, this is the answer to your shoulder pain, or this is the answer to you being tired. But what I would say is this could help if we use it in conjunction with other things like proper exercise and, uh, you know, getting you stronger in certain ranges of motion. And so that's, that's why things like cupping are, are, are powerful and they, and they can be useful. Uh, I would just never say that it's the one solution to a problem. I think like, like you were saying, I, I would dread to think what it would be like if I didn't move <laughs> for only two minutes over the next 10 years, I'd probably be massively, massively rigid. <laughs> Do you think cupping would help you at that point? No, I, I, I from a therapy point of view, I don't think much would work at all because you'd be that, that's everything. Well, like you said, the synovial fluid wouldn't be as uh, prominent in, in your, in your limbs. Uh, you'd probably be a right mess and it probably would take probably a lot, a lot of sessions just to get you back to where you were probably 10 years prior, let alone anything more than that. (laughs) So we have to, we have to think about too, that, you know, the human body has been able to survive for thousands of years and been able to fix itself that we, we often underestimate how powerful the body is at healing itself. It, it, It is, it's a tool designed to heal itself we've i think a lot of times because we we've as human beings and our species we've been faced with uh war and work right and these ideas that i have to be somewhere at a certain time you know it used to be you would get up and hunt when animals were out and then when they weren't why would you go do something else when you could conserve energy and wait until it's time to go hunt again but now it's james it's 5 a.m. on a tuesday you have to be at this place at this time so I can give you money and you can keep living your life. Well, you know, if you're going to be somewhere from 5 a.m. to, let's say, if you're lucky, you know, 2 p.m., probably more likely 3, 4, 5 p.m., you're, you're, you're essentially telling someone to stay in a certain position for 8, 9, 10, 12 hours a day. Um, the body wasn't designed to do that. And so that's why we're bringing in other fields in a lot of ways. That's why we're bringing in physiotherapists, uh, trainers, uh, chiropractors, uh, nutritionists, because 
we've eliminated that need to move, right? To, to change positions. A lot of low back pain could be solved by just changing positions frequently. Uh, you know, instead of just, there, I always tell people this, there's no such thing as good posture. Posture is not a, is, is, is a, it's a difficult thing to explain to someone, but posture is not a, is not a sedentary, stable position. There's no such thing as a, a good posture. The best posture is one that's constantly changing. And so that's what good posture is because your, your muscles are constantly activated, even though they feel like they're off. For me to sit up right now, James, for you to be sitting up right now and talking to each other, my trunk muscles are working, my chest muscles are working, my arm muscles are working, my back is certainly working. And so I need to be activating and changing the positions of those muscles at all times. So that way there's, there's this balance of expectation of stress. Whereas if I just say, you could tell someone, sit up straight. And I guarantee you, if someone sat up straight for 14 hours a day, they'd still have back pain. Even though someone would say, you have great posture. And, you, and I'd say, it doesn't matter because you're only staying in one position. And the body was designed to do one thing, not stay in one position. But uh, this is probably like in the office environment, obviously there's been inventions of um, the chairs for better posture and things like that. But obviously how you say it and how I've reflected on what you've just said, obviously it would be better to maybe even scrap that idea and, and just to get up. I think it, I was reading, it's if you get up a move position wise, was every hour for at least five to 10 minutes, you, you, you'd help with your um, posture. Yeah, and I think more than posture, you'd, you'd help fight off things like low back pain or knee pain um, because you're, you're telling your body that it has to move. And your body, your body responds to one thing, and, and that's stress. And so stress, not just like a psychological stress, but actual physical stress on the body. So as someone who does online training, personal training, James, and coaching, you know, you, you don't grow by – lifting the same weight over and over and over and over and over again, right? At some point you have to put more on to grow, to become stronger, to get, uh, to move better. And so we have to do the same thing, right? If, if, if I tell my body, I mean, I picture sometimes like this avatar of my body over here on the side. And if I were to just say, you know, just don't, don't do anything for 12 hours. And then after 12 hours I go, Hey, it's time. It's time to like perform you're like, I'm tired, dude. I've, I've just been sitting here for 12 hours. Like I don't have the energy. I haven't done anything. So we have to find ways to, and I'm really fascinated by that. It's something that I would ultimately love to get into is instead of trying to help people um, just outside of work, how can we infiltrate into workplaces and help people where they're going to be? They have to be, you know, people have to be at work. Um, whether or not I, I believe that internally at this point in society, people have to be at work. And, you know, why aren't we getting to where people are eight, nine, 10 hours a day? Because that's where we can make a difference. I think, I think that's where we can really, for example, with physiotherapy or athletic training or personal trainers, getting into a workplace environment and saying, look, your, your, your employees are at a high risk of low back pain because all they do is sit all day and they have, there's no, uh, you know, incentive to get up and move. In fact, if anything, there's probably more incentive to stay sitting to try to pump out more work. So maybe you look better to your employer or you get a bonus or something. 
So how do we incentivize movement? Because ultimately, one of the biggest costs, in fact, in the U.S., for example, the number one reason for missed work days is musculoskeletal pain. So why do people have musculoskeletal pain? Well, it's because people are sitting all day. <laughs> your back hurts. Your neck hurts. You're in this hunched over position. And so, you know, want to get to employers directly and say, look, you know, people are missing. And, and what missed days come down to is missed productivity for the employer side and a lack of uh, revenue that could have been generated that day. And so that's where I think we, we really have an opportunity in our fields. I think you and I and, and anyone else in the health kind of world can really have a unique niche in getting into those um, offices and, and places of, of employment and saying, hey, your employees are here for eight, nine, 10 hours a day. Let me help them stay healthy so you don't have to pay them for missed days off because they have back pain or neck pain. And I think if we do that too, you, you hit a place where someone's going to be every day, five days a week. You want to talk about consistency. That is a huge place where you could make consistent changes because people have to be there. People don't have to show up to the gym. People don't have to show up to the online Skype calls with James, right? They have the choice of not doing that. Most people don't have a choice when it comes to going to work. And so why don't we meet them there? And, and uh, I don't have the answers. I wish I did. I just think that that's where we can really make an impact. So uh, I hope that we can do that. And Will, if I move on to the next segment of the, of the show and say, um, how did your uh, podcast come about? Yeah, so the, the Nobody's podcast kind of came from uh, a friend and I were in physiotherapy school and we, we just felt like we, so in physiotherapy school, you have to do internships uh, or, re, or we call them clinical rotations where you essentially go and you practice under uh, a supervisor or someone, an experienced physiotherapist and you learn from them. It's sort of like an apprenticeship, uh, but you do multiple of them in different settings and I constantly found myself just explaining to someone what is, what it, you know, patients would be like, you know, I don't really understand what diabetes is. And in the U.S. at least, physiotherapists tend to get anywhere from 20 to 20 minutes to an hour with the patient, which if, if the U.K. is anything like the U.S., uh, if you got to see your medical doctor for a half an hour, you would think that some bomb went off and everyone was not, you know, for some reason people didn't show up today because I can't think of the last time I've seen my medical doctor for more than 10 minutes at a time and they're on to the next person and they bring in an assistant or whoever they're, whoever the nurse. Um, so we would have the time, we have the luxury of having time with patients. And so I found myself explaining, you know, what does, uh, just simple things. What is hypertension? What does it really mean? You know? And I found that if I said things in scientific words, people would look at me like, wow, you seem really smart, but I have no idea what you're saying. This is crazy. You know, but they, they wouldn't want to say it because they just wouldn't want to be rude and be like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Something about glycemia and, you know, lipids. And, and they were just like, this guy seems smart, but he's not helping me at all. And so once I started using analogies, you know, like with uh, simple things like you know, congestive heart failure, right? So really what that is, is you have valves, in your heart, you have four valves in your heart. And sometimes those valves become uh, like undone or they're, they're not as tight as they were before. And so you can get a little bit of leaking. And then that's what leads to sort of a backflow and a plugging. And that's why sometimes you start to see pooling in your legs. If you've ever seen someone with congestive heart failure, 
often have really swollen legs. And so once I started using analogies, I just noticed people really resonated with that. And I thought, well, why don't we try to talk about that? What if we, what if we talk about that? And as a student, I didn't feel like I was an expert. So I thought, what if we bring on experts who are really good at telling these things like stories? And so that's been our entire mission with the Nobody's Podcast is to bring on experts in the healthcare world um, and, and, and not even just healthcare, but in, in life that are doing things that have a really great way of putting things into story form or analogy form to understand things like pain. You know, I think oftentimes pain right now is such a, a, a strange topic in that we often think that pain is, it comes from the physical site where we hurt ourselves, like my knee, right? Like if I bang my knee, my pain is in my knee. Well, for a certain period of time it is, but really after a while it becomes a cortical change in your brain. So you have a, what we just call your cortex, but your brain actually starts to change. It, the wiring changes and now your perceived threat just jumps up through the roof. And so I don't even have to give you much of a stimulus to anywhere near your knee and all of a sudden your knee pain can be whew, eight, eight out of 10, nine out of 10. And that has very little to do with actual damage to your knee. It's that your brain is now perceived a threat saying, I should be in pain. This should be painful. And so breaking that down into an analogy, right, of, of here's like an overactive fire alarm, right? It's like if you get anywhere near a fire alarm, it goes off, even though there's no fire. And so And doing that. And so that's where all that started. And, and, and we've been really lucky. I'm not sure how we've had the success we've had, but uh, it's been a great ride. And uh, we, we are just so fortunate to meet great people and, and hopefully we'll be having you on soon and, and we can chat about your experiences because I think it's uh, we just need more people who, who can help people really understand things because the knowledge, the science is great. It's wonderful. But if you don't know what it means or how to use it and how to interpret it yourself, ultimately it doesn't do a lot of good. And going back to that control and power, if I'm the only one with the knowledge and ability to understand something, I'm kind of feeding my ego as I'm the one who's smart. I have the answers. I know the education. And we need, and I just am a big believer that the patient or the client needs that education as well. We just have to put it in different terms, you know, in language that they're more used to. And, and I think ultimately we do it ourselves, right? We, I mean, I didn't, I didn't get through graduate school or, or this doctor program being like, oh, yes totally understand the glucose levels there. Yeah. You know, oh, I know all this, uh, you know, the CPR counts of some creatine level. Like, no, I had to tell myself stories of what those things meant. Like I had to create stories of oh, creatines like, Oh, it's, it's kind of like this energizer bunny thing going on. Like, yeah. If we put it in there and then you get all this stuff and, and that's how my, that's how most people's brains work. You know, we, we all have to create stories to help us understand these complex ideas so that's, that's what the podcast came out of. If, if anyone feels like that's something they would enjoy, you know, after you listen to James's podcast, of course, first, uh, feel free to check out the, the Nobody's Podcast. But I think that one you bring up with the, with the knee pain and the associated comes with it, I think it's kind of a psychosomatic way. Your brain is obviously going into flight fight or flight mode obviously if it's you're going anywhere near that it's sore i think what the tendencies the muscles do is obviously if something is hurt another one is going to become tight as a result to also what i want uh, protect it in a way 
So it can, it, it can be. Um, I think oftentimes, so it's, it's a matter of, of uh, a couple of things. So I think a lot of it comes down to timing. So actual tissue damage can, can vary in how long it lasts. But let's say, and by tissue damage, I mean your muscle, your, your bone, um, any, any type of uh, sort of living, living element within your body, uh, for a lot of it can be considered a tissue. But let's just say uh, that timing, so typically most tissue injuries, and by that I mean muscle, will be able to heal within six to eight weeks if it's not severe. And so once we get to the point that we're past that, like six to eight weeks, and someone's still saying, I've got eight out of 10 pain, that's kind of shifted in that those muscles around it may want to protect it. And again, but that doesn't mean that it's not ready to move, right? It's still ready to move at that point. It's just now the brain is actually taken over. And the brain saying, I sense a threat. I sense that we should be in pain when in reality, there's no actual tissue damage at this point. So the brain is now taken over and said, we should be feeling pain. We should be feeling pain. We should be feeling pain. It's like this just constant cycle going on. And so that's where we have to relax the muscles around that area. We have to relax that, that muscle itself and say, look, you're not in pain. We just have to, it's, it's like talking to a little kid of being like, it's okay to jump in the pool. It's okay. Like I'm here. You have floaties on. I don't know in the UK if you call them floaties on your arms, you know, you get the like, uh, you know, puffed up things that help you float. Uh, and be like, it's okay to move again. And it's, it's definitely okay. Your brain is just telling you that it's not. So it's tough. Yes, the muscles around it can protect. Um, and by protect, they just become overactive and they want to take on the force that normally that muscle would take on. But again, I think it's something that's very personal uh, and very person dependent on how, how responsive they are to pain, for example. And, and in terms of, the, like you were saying, it's very much. How would you break down that barrier, really? Because once once you've got it fixated in your mind that something's not right, it's quite difficult to actually get back to normal. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's where I think language is important, and that's why I think the power of story is is so important and and so uh, useful in that people can relate to stories and people can relate to someone who talks to them at their level. Um, you know, one of the best things I ever learned when I was a teacher was that you should, if you're going to have a serious talk with a, a kid and I taught first grade and elementary school, primary school was to get on your knee and talk to the, to the kid at or child at eye level. I really didn't really understand it at first. And then I started trying it and I noticed you know, kids would listen and, and they would be much more involved. And I learned really quickly that, you break that barrier of this, I'm an authority, you're not, I'm superior, you're not. You break that, that chasm, you know, of, of, of who's right, who's wrong. And when you, when you approach someone, and language can be that way as well, right? If I start talking in pure scientific terms and you, don't, you haven't studied science, you know, automatically there's this gap between us of, oh, I know so much more than you do, right? Or I'm so much smarter than you are. And ultimately, you know, that doesn't really help anyone if we can't, if we can't connect at some level. And so uh, I'm a big believer that we, we have to use our language and, and talking at a, at a, at a diction level of being able to talk to someone 
that we both can understand each other. And, and that's where I think real change can happen. So that's how we break down fear. That's how we break down concepts of, uh, you know, I can't do this or I, sh- I don't think I should do that. And we start using stories and you start using analogies. People, people resonate with that. You know, it's the same way we resonate with, for example, you know, David and Goliath, right? And an underdog story that goes back long periods of time. And, uh, you know, whether you're religious or not, you can relate to that, right? You, you don't have to say, well, you're the small guy. There's the big guy, right? You just say David and Goliath and you understand, oh, yes, I get it. You know, one's, one's sort of uh, has no chance. One should win, but the one with no chance wins. And so just breaking things into stories, I think, is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And I think that's our best way at helping. I think it's one of our, our tools that we can use to help people change. I think that's a good analogy to use it, like to storytell, to help people. And the last question, Will, before I, we wrap up the show, is if you had to summarize this entire episode into one sentence, what would that be? Ooh, if I had to summarize, I would say your body is incredibly powerful. You are an athlete regardless of any age. And if there's one thing that we all can benefit from in life is keep moving, move, 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 move. I think that was technically like six sentences. If you put a full stop after every move, but <laughs> I think that's, that's probably put a comma. We'll use commas. It's probably the, the coming to live by and that obviously we should be more active and getting about. Obviously that's what we were built for. So, once again, Will, thanks for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. Absolutely. Thanks so much, James. It's been an honor. I, I, hope, uh, I hope there were some, some pearls in there that uh, were mixed in with a lot of rambling. And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast.